You're listening to the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict. We're going to pick up in the middle of the first chapter of Chala. And where we left was with some weird kinds of cakes. Sufganin, which are translated here as sponge cakes. And... Um, Dufshanim, which are honey cakes, and that's a root which is close to dvash for honey. And um, iskaritin, and these are kind of dumplings. And halat hamas, halat hamas, hamas rate. This is stuff cooked in a pan. And muduma, and we, we, we know muduma, and these are all exempt from chala, and we know muduma is exempt from chala because it's really partly truma. Why are the others exempt? We didn't really explore this very much, but the common factor seems to be that they're not cooked in the oven. To make something liable for challah, you need it to be cooked in the oven like bread. So something like a dumpling, or a pancake, or a waffle, or a donut, which is not really cooked in the oven, isn't going to be liable for challah. And that raises a question which the next missioner is going to dive into. Because we know that the dough for these kind of things is pretty much the same, right? You make a sweet dough, you can make it into a dumpling or a donut or a, or you can bake it in the oven like a, like a brioche, right? There's not very much difference in the dough of these objects. And so the missioner is going to ask, What about dough which we originally made for sponge cakes, vessel for sufganin. Well, and it ended up as sponge cakes. Well, we know puturam in a It's going to be patur. We learned that in the last mishnah. But what if it plays the other way round? Trilataisa. You made it as ordinary dough. You made it like a brioche dough. Vessel for sufganin. You ended up cooking it like a dumpling or or like like a donut. What's the situation? Or the other way round? Maybe you started it off as a sponge cake, and it, but you ended up just baking it in the oven like ordinary bread. So you change the purpose of this thing halfway through. It's interesting that the Mishnah just says, look, they're both chayav b'chala. I guess the first one is because the, the obligation, they're both obligated, they're both liable for chala. I guess the rationale must be that the obligation for chala begins when you make the dough, right? So if you make ordinary dough, it's liable for chala. If, you know, if you end up cooking it like a donut, well, that doesn't take the liability away. And I guess it must work in the opposite direction in some other way. In other words, that you might originally make sponge cakes but you can imagine that the rabbis aren't going to allow you to exempt from challah some uh some brioche some cakes something cooked in the oven just because you originally made it for another purpose if you end up baking it you've got to take challah and then finally the dish the missioner deals with something called knuvkot which are kind of breadcrumbs mixed according to the rambam anyway these are breadcrumbs which are sort of mixed with flour and kneaded together but the idea from the Rambam is that you basically knead the up into proper dough, which you can bake in an oven, and that's why they're liable for challah. So the Mishnah is then going to go from these cases, these borderline cases of 
stuff that started one way and ends up the other maybe more closely connect to the breadcrumb cake and to deal with different kinds of pastes, sort of mixtures, really. And we're going to deal with something called maisa. Maisa seems to be a bit like a dumpling. You you take flour and you throw it into hot water to cook it. So you don't really bake. It's not really oven baked. And Beit Shammai is going to exempt and Beit Hillel is going to make liable. And then we've got chalita. Chalita is the same thing, but the opposite way round. We're going to take hot water and we're going to throw it in the flour. Or we're going to mix it up to kind of make a sort of mix. This must be a bit like a pancake mix. You, you put hot water into the flour and you stir it around and you get a mix that you can, uh, you can actually cook in all kinds of different ways. And here we're going to, the halacha will go the other way around. Beit Shammai will, Mechaivin, uh, Beit Shammai will make liable and Beit Hillel exempts. And Kahati does bring a view, actually, that these two halves, that these two things are exactly the same, by the way. And they're dealt with in the Gemara in Pesachim as though they are exactly the same kind of thing, whether it's a dumpling or whether it's a, a sort of a flour paste, like a pancake paste. Maybe they're exactly the same thing from the point of view of Hametz. That's the context in which they're discussed in Pesachim. But there is a view brought by Kahati that actually they are identical things. And the difference between these two opinions, between the view of Meisa and Chalita, remember Beit Shammai exempts the first one but makes the second one liable. Actually, there is a view brought that, that actually they had the that Beit Shammai had a consistent view, i.e. exempted both of them or he obligated both of them, but we just can't remember which. So in other words, Beit Shammai do have a consistent view, and they do treat both of these products together, but we just can't remember which one. We can't remember which one. And um, what we're seeing in this Mishnah are two different recollections of the views of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Interestingly enough, this ruling is quoted again in Edu Yot, but just the again, just the first half of the Mishnah. As if it is possible that Beit Shammai did have a consistent view, and, and Rabbi Yossi lists in Edu Yot six instances of lenient rulings by Beit Shammai, and sure enough, this is one of them. Ham Isa. So in Edu Yot, we just have the Isa. Beit Shammai Potrin, Beit Hillel Machayavin, Beit Shammai exempt, and Beit Hillel make liable, just like we have in our Mishnah in Chal. Then the Mishnah is going to go on to talk about stuff which we, I think we can already expect because of what we know is not going to be liable for Chala. So Chalot Nazir, these are loaves for a Thanksgiving sacrifice or for a Nazirite sacrifice. And we've already taught the fact that the Chala is an is a offering and we don't take from an offering for an offering. So, for example, Truma is exempt from Chala. So clearly, if you made these for yourself, they're exempt. If you make them for sale in the market, well, the sages are worried that you're going to sell them in the market and someone else will not offer them up. So if you're going to sell them in the market, they are going to be liable for challah. But again, we're following principles that we know already and we can understand the pattern here. 
Finally, and this is the finally, finally for this evening, we're going to deal with the question of differential ownership. Now, we've already talked about the fact that there's a minimum quantity for um, a, a minimum quantity of flour to make it obligatory to take color, and that's basically five five fourths of a cup. We had it back in um, um, we had it back, I think, in the third in in the fourth in the fourth in the fourth Mishnah. There's a certain set of grains which are exempt from chala, as well, ufachot michameshet ruvain batwa. Anything that's less than five-fourths of a cove of grain, which is about about a quarter and a half, actually. So we can think a quarter, we can think of about a quarter and a half of, uh, of flour. So a baker, let's say a baker has got a quantity of a quantity of, of flour and he's making dough to divide up between many different customers so he's going to give them the dough and he's going to give them less than less than five-fourths each what's the situation well i think we might expect if he starts off with a large quantity the liability for color arises when he mixes the dough and we're going to learn this actually explicitly in the Mishnah a bit later. So clearly, if he makes a large quantity and then divides it up among his customers, he's going to be liable for chalor on the whole dough. But it doesn't work the other way around because of the differential ownership. Look, nashim women who gave flour to a baker to make them leavening. This is really interesting, and it teaches us something, by the way, about cooking in the time of the Mishnah. Maybe you didn't have your own sourdough, or maybe you didn't have an effective sourdough. or may I, I, I don't think it's a question of the physical labor of mixing, because the labor of mixing anybody could do. But there must be a reason why women are giving their flour to the baker. And I, I suspect it's to do with the rising process. He can make them rise. He can make the dough rise. And they can't. So they're giving the dough to the baker. He's then mixing it all up. He's making sa'or. He's making the leavening. And he's giving them back their share. But of course, here the ownership lies with the women, not with the baker. And the Mishnah continues, If none of them come up to the right measurement, i.e. if none of them are five-fourths of a cub, the whole thing is exempt from chala. Even though it's mixed up as one lump by the baker, and even though we've learned, by the way, that different grains and different species can mix up together to make up the quantity. So different types of flour can mix up to make up the quantity, but somehow different ownerships, at least in this example, cannot. Ownership is important. And that's the close of the seventh Mishnah. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict. Benedict.